what smell causes your mind to flash back to a memory you absolutely love? Is there a smell that you can think of, uh, fresh-baked apple pie or something? You walk into a, I don't know, your, your grandparents' house or you walk into a house and there's just that smell that brings you back to a childhood memory. And it gives you a few moments of what we call nostalgia. Now, a dictionary definition of nostalgia is a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past, typically for a period of, or place with happy personal associations. But, I mean, nostalgia is something that can't really be defined by a dictionary definition, is it? Because it's an experience. Uh, it's, it's a, maybe it's a song. Maybe there's a song that brings you back to a place and time in your life. Uh, maybe it was a song you had on your wedding day. And every time you hear that song, whether you're with your spouse or you're not, whether your spouse is here or deceased, you're reminded of those intimate moments that you've shared together. Maybe it's weather. Uh, maybe there's that crispness in the air, the fall that reminds you of a specific time, you know, a fall in years gone by where you were with family and friends and everything looking back just seems perfect. Or maybe it's a childhood toy or blanket that you still can't quite part with because of its meaning to you. We've all experienced this feeling of nostalgia. And it's one of those neat experiences to be in because you can't plan it. It just happens, right? It's something that just happens to you and you go, whoa. And it brings you that flashback of times gone by. But if we aren't careful, our wistful longing and affection for the past may be skewed and something in which we can overindulge in. We begin saying, those were the days almost resigning ourselves to a bleak outlook on the future. That those were the days, and man, I could never see that happening again in the same way it did before. Is that how we should live? And if it's not how we should live, what is a better alternative? Are our glory days really behind us? Well, in this text we'll look at together, we'll see that God wants our glory days to be an ongoing and increasing experience. God wants our glory days to be an ongoing and increasing experience. And how, how do we make this a reality in our lives? Well, number one, we'll see from the text that we are to plant our feet in reality. We need to plant our feet in reality. Starting in verse 10 of chapter 6, we read, Whatever exists has, has already been named, and what humanity is has been known, and no one can t contend with someone who is stronger. We need to begin by planting our feet in reality, that you are a human, no more and no less. I am a human, no more and no less. And the truth is that humans have wreaked more havoc on this universe than all other animals combined. And we continue to do so. We do things out of cruelty. We do things out of spite. Whereas most animals in the mammalian kingdom just do things to survive. Humans are inherently cruel, or they can be. And with that, we need to recognize that there is an evil pervading us. And of course, it comes to the forefront of our minds 
in occurrences that happened just this past week. We think back to what's happening in the Middle East. I keep going back to that, the, the initial invasion um, of uh, the initial invasion of Israel where you had a, a bunch of people at a, just like college-age students, at a all-night dance-off. It was a big, I don't know, whatever they call it, a big concert they had there, you know, techno music, all sorts of that thing. And you had these uh, Hamas terrorists flying in on parasails. They landed and they mowed down over 250 people in one day, just at this concert. People who'd been up all night dancing, having a good time. Humans have wreaked more havoc on this universe than all other animals combined. So that should cause us to pause in our own lives and recognize that it's only by the grace of God that we aren't like that. And with that, there are certain things that we can't change about our makeup. We are human, and we're stuck this way. You can't become a rabbit. You can't become a cat. You don't change your identity. And, and Kahelet, the teacher, wants you to look at that and almost feel a sense of like you're stuck. You know, he wants you to feel like you're, you're stuck in the way that you are, and you're trapped. You ever feel claustrophobic before? He wants you to feel that way about your humanity. You may say, well, that's insane. Why would I ever feel that way? Well, he wants you to see that you are who you are, and you can't change that. All right? You're a human. You can't be something else. Have I repeated it enough? It would be impossible for you to change your makeup. And in the same way, it's impossible for you to contend against God. Just as it's impossible for you to change your makeup, it's impossible for you to contend against God. And he ties that in with the second part of verse 10. No one can contend against someone who is stronger than he. Now, I realize the NIV leaves that kind of vague, and there's a reason for them doing that. They don't want to imply one thing or another. But it seems, you read the commentaries, and it seems to be that the teacher is relaying um, that someone, in fact, is being God. The, the, I believe it's the King James, the New King James, will actually use the word him. Um, no one can contend against he who is stronger. And the word he is capital, reference to God. So there's an, it's implying that you can't contend against God. No matter how much you struggle, you can't do it. And so there's a need for us to plant our feet in reality. Recognize the fact that we are human no more and no less. And with that, it follows that we have an expiration date. When you read verses 11 and 12, the more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Now, I think verses 11 and 12 are designed to stand alongside each other. We've already seen that an increase of words multiplies futility. So the teacher is asking the question, well, if an increase of words multiply meaninglessness, what about an increase of days? Can you connect those two things together? Words will only get us so far, right? Eventually, eventually, we need to get to work. Eventually, we need to stop talking and start doing. 
Sometimes we need to buckle down and get to work. And in the same way, an extended number of days will only get us so far. An extended number of days will only get us so far. The teacher is already in this chapter, we saw it last week, looked at the person who lived a thousand years and fathered a hundred hundred kids, you know, using hyperbole for a reason, who's done all that. And yet, if he doesn't have a life of meaning, what's the point? Longevity, who cares? So he's comparing an immense amount of words with an immense amount of days. If what you're saying doesn't matter, all your words are meaningless. If the way you live doesn't matter ultimately, all those extended days are meaningless. What's the point of having a $50,000 a month apartment in New York City if there's no life in it? If there's no family to come home to at the end of the day? If you come home to an empty spread In the grand scheme of life under the sun, you and I pass through days of our lives like we pass through shadows at sunset. You ever pass through a shadow before? You do it a lot when you're driving, you know, like you're driving down the road and there's trees or something, and as you're driving, a shadow hits your face and it's gone. That's the idea. It's there and it's gone. And he's saying your days are like that too. And the longer we live the more our days feel like shadows in the past. Just like think, how many days have I been around this? How many days have I lived on this earth? Really? Have I really lived that many days? Um, you can calculate it yourself. I didn't do the math ahead of time. Uh, but it's, it's that idea where like the longer you live, the smaller in proportion each day becomes to your life. Does that make sense? Where for an infant, right, a one-year-old, each day represents a much, a much greater portion of their overall life so far than to a 90-year-old. You pass through it like a shadow. We need to keep our, pl- our feet planted in reality. And we jump into chapter 7, where we read, a good name is better than fine perfume. And again, these are, you can come to these own conclusions through your own meditation on these passages. And right now, we're hitting a, a bunch of like rapid-fire bullet points of wisdom, um, and that's what chapter 7 is. And this is neat. Um, and this is just a little aside, and I'll be really quick here, but this gives us a bigger picture of what we call inspiration. All right? This is the fact that God has preserved his word, and he has inspired people to write down things that are true to reality and true to God's nature over thousands of years. And God has seen fit to preserve them in this book called the Bible. With that, you read the end of Ecclesiastes, and you read that the teacher, Solomon, he's collecting wisdom literature. He not only writes it himself, but he goes around to different sages, yes, from various religions, not all Christianity, and he looks at their wisdom, and he says, that fits. That's good. And he gathers it together and puts it all in place, and guess who saw fit to preserve it? God. So God pulls from other religions, essentially, other people groups, and says, that's good. That's true to who I am. They don't have the whole truth, but that right there, that's good. Use that. What a marvelous picture of how God has chosen to preserve his word. And here we have what could be an example of that, where you have all these bullet points of wisdom all corresponding to one thing. Solomon didn't have to come up with all of these. He could have read them and said, that's true to God's nature. I'm putting that down. Okay, that aside, a good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better 
than the day of birth. You ever smell a really good perfume? Uh, Joe recently uh, got this perfume. Um, uh, she's probably wearing it now, so you can go smell it if you want. Uh, not right now, not during the service. Uh, but it smells really good. Uh, and um, it's one of those things where, you know, you spritz it. If you spray it in the air, right? You know, because some people missed themselves, right? They missed. I've also seen that some people spray and then they walk through it, supposedly. Or you spray the, the wrist, right? Because it's on the pulse and every time uh, your pulse pulses, whatever a pulse does, it like supposes to emanate a scent out. Okay, right? That's what I've been told. I don't know if it's true or not. I doubt it, unless your pulse is going really hard. He compares a good perfume, a really good-smelling perfume, and a good name. And he says, in every way, a good name is better than a fine perfume. And he doesn't explain it. He just moves on, and the day of death better than the day of birth. He wants you to think about it and go, okay, how is a good name better than a fine perfume? I think one of the things he's trying to convey is when there's a fine perfume, you smell it while you're around it, but then when you leave it, you stop smelling it. You may have the nostalgia of it, but it's not the same thing as the thing itself. A good name, a good reputation lasts long after the person is gone, whereas a good perfume, it dissipates after the person leaves. The better than comparison leads into the point the teacher is really making. Because that's not, he, he doesn't want you to stay fixated on the perfume. He says, okay, I'm moving forward onto something else. That's just to kind of get the better than um, scenario laid out. Here's what I want you to see attending a funeral is better than attending a party. And you go, what are you smoking, teacher? That is insane. In every way, Attending a funeral is better than attending a party? He qualifies it. For, this is the reason, death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. It's, you see, it's the somber funeral, not the wild party, that demands one begin contemplating their end and what comes next. That's what he's trying to drive home. Remember, one of the journey, one of the, Kahalat, the teacher, is in search of ultimates, ultimate realities. That party isn't your ultimate reality. He's already said, joy in life is to be found in enjoying the good gifts God has given to us. And one of them is eating good food, drinking good, and yes, Kahalat would have said wine, drinking good wine, not overindulging, Spending time with loved ones. Those are good things to be received as a gift from God. So why here does he go and say, but it's better than that. Instead of going to a house of feasting, go to a funeral service. It's so that we don't realize that that elation that's at the party is the ultimate, because it's not this side of eternity. You know some people who they spend their 30s. You know, their 20s, they spend partying. Their 30s, they try and keep up with their 20s, but acid reflux start to, starts to become a thing, and um, they can't do as much as they used to. Then when they hit 40, their bodies start to hurt a lot more. And then 50, they start contemplating, why in the world did I spend so many of my days just partying and living it up? 
That's what he wants you to see. He wants you to go to a funeral service, to go to the cemetery right up at Maplewood, to walk among the tombstones and picture your name there. Look at that person and imagine their life. Read about the person who died a hundred years ago and go, wow, I wonder if they ever were walking in a cemetery. I wonder if they ever did this. I wonder if they had a family. I wonder if they had hopes and dreams. And the answer to all those questions is yes. Because that is where you see your end in a fallen world. God wants our glory days to be an ongoing and increasing experience. Therefore, we must plant our feet in reality. We must also learn to live our lives with humility. The passage goes on to say in verses 5 through 7, It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Here we see at first we're, we're called to love, learn to love constructive criticism. You know, we've all been criticized before. Raise your hand if you've been criticized. All right, yeah. Raise your hand if you think the person who criticized you was and remains an imbecile. All right? You're always right. We need to learn to love constructive criticism because it's how we grow. It's how we learn and grow. No one likes to have their failings and rough edges exposed. I know I don't. But if we want to be wise, we'll take the time, instead of just our hackles immediately going up, which is talked about in this proverb, we'll pause, catch our breath when we're criticized in whatever capacity it may be, and we'll say, is, in our minds, is there some merit to that criticism? Because chances are there probably is. If we want our glory days to be an ongoing experience, we must learn to love constructive criticism. Proverbs fifteen thirty one says, One who listens to life-giving rebukes will be at home among the wise. We read again, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Uh, there's a psychologist by the name of Daniel Kahneman. Um, after being refuted in a, lecture, lectures, in a lecture presentation by a fellow scientist, um, he writes, Daniel Kahneman, after being refuted, like a whole perspective, a whole argument that he put forward is refuted and done correctly, Daniel Kahneman writes, I had my viewpoint corrected, so now I'm closer to the truth. And he was elated that he had been so dramatically corrected. Why? Because he was a good scientist and he cared about truth above all else. And when it comes to character, we need to be good scientists and we need to care about truth above all else. And if there's some merit to criticism, then we need to be willing to receive it in spirits of humility. And we also need to learn that external temptations are always abundant and destructive if yielded to. Verse 7. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. This is a really cool proverb, and I'll tell you why I love it. Because it is doubly true. The teacher purposefully leaves it vague, because he doesn't tell you, one, who the wise person is, and he doesn't tell you whose heart is being corrupted. Why is that so cool? Because the one committing the extortion, the word, it's... it's, it's it could also just mean oppression. Some translations will render it oppression. So if that's what you have, don't be alarmed. Oppression turns a wise person into a fool. Okay? 
is the wise person the one who's oppressing? And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, keep in mind, in wisdom literature, you are wise by your choices. It's not, yay, I've attained the, the status of a sage. Now I'm wise forevermore. No, a wise person can become a fool by the choices they make. And we know that to be true in our own lives. Just like a fool can be wise by making better choices. So it's all about the choices you make. So you have here a picture of an oppressor and the oppressed. And we don't know exactly who the wise person is. It could be the wise person, he becomes the oppressor, and he starts oppressing, and what happens to him? He becomes a fool. Or it could be the oppressed, who is wise, because of the oppression levied against him, goes insane. And we can picture that too. We're a prisoner of war who was completely sane just because of the constant torture he's under, the oppression he's experiencing, he loses it. Both can be true. And when we look at this, we need to say, okay, which one do I have a proclivity or disposition toward given my situation? And the second part of this proverb is just as true. A bribe corrupts the heart. Whose heart? Is it the one giving the bribe or is it the one receiving the bribe? Answer, yes. Both hearts are corrupted in this proverb as well. External temptations are abundant and destructive. We need to be made aware of this, and we need to live in humility, regardless of whatever place we're in. If you have power, take heed lest you become an oppressor and make yourself a fool. If you are being oppressed, guard yourself, as oppression can lead wise men, can drive wise men mad. If you have money and attempt to line pockets to get your way, take heed because your heart is being corrupted. If you're being bribed, the same outcome may occur. God wants our glory days to be an ongoing and increasing experience. Therefore, we must live our lives with humility. And finally, we must fix our eyes on eternity. We see in verses 8 through 10 that number one, we're to look toward the goal where he says the end of a matter is better than its beginning. This proverb implies that times of trial may be purposeful that they are confined to limited seasons, and that the end product makes them worthwhile. Thus, the reader is invited to grasp the hope of an outcome to trials and to face them accordingly. We see this in James as well, where we're called to consider it joy when we face various trials, because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that we may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And finally, we're told to let go of the past. We can find ourselves often saying, why were the old days better than these? And yet, according to the teacher, he says, don't do that. Don't do that. Because the old days to you, which were better to you, were horrific to someone else around the world. I think a great example of this is maybe post-World War II. Here in the United States, 50s were great. So I've been told. I'm not from the 50s. But what about in Japan? What about in Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Those weren't the good old days for them. He wants our horizon to be expanded, to not just include our own life, but all of reality under the sun. 
so that we say, it's not as simple as I thought it was, and it's not really as good either. Kidner here, the guy I've quoted from quite frequently, to sigh for the good old days is doubly unrealistic. It's a substitute not only for action, but for proper thought, since it almost invariably overlooks the evils that took a different form or vexed a different section of society in other times. One cannot face the difficulties of one age by pining for another. And if this is true on an individual scale, it's also true on a global scale. But looking at the individual scale, you have Paul saying, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are before. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see, your past is covered by the blood of Christ. We pine for the good old days without realizing what it is we're truly pining for. And you know, if you're a Christian, then you're going through the process of sanctification, which means that day by day, the Spirit is renewing you to make you more like Christ and reveal more and more sin that needs to be done away with. And there are times today that you probably feel more sinful than you were 10 years ago. But that's just because the process of sanctification is working and it's revealing more and more of your dark heart that needs cleansing. You go, man, I wish for those good old days where I thought I had it all together. And it's like, you didn't have it all together. You just didn't know how badly you were falling apart. Now that you know how badly you're falling apart, you're starting to get somewhere. That's what Kehelet wants us to see here. And I think that's what Christ wants us to see in our own lives. Because that's when we realize our need for him day after day after day. That it's not a one-time deal, but every day we need the love of Christ. Every day we need his grace to sustain us. Every day we need his presence with us. God wants our glory days to be an ongoing and increasing experience. Therefore, we must fix our eyes on eternity. As a Christian, we can honestly say that the best is yet to come. There are many, there are going to be many hills and valleys throughout that. But through this text, and I believe a principle that you see throughout Scripture, we can recognize that God wants our glory days to be an ongoing and increasing experience. We need to start by first planting our feet in reality, second by living our lives with humility, and by third fixing our eyes on eternity. Life can only ultimately get better from here. Your glory days, your best days, are still yet to come. And I'm reminded of that hymn, Oh, that will be glory for me. Glory for me, glory for me. When by His grace I shall look on His face, that will be glory, glory for me. Father, we thank You for this time we could spend in Your Word. I pray that it moves our hearts to be closer with You. That if we are in a state of maybe depression, maybe rightfully so, maybe there's things going on in our lives that are driving us to our knees in desperation. Pray that we recognize that in those moments and at all times, you're with us, you're sustaining us, that we can throw our burdens on you. Why? Because you care intimately for us. I pray that day by day, your spirit renews us, makes us new, 
that we live in light of the cross and the perfect satisfaction that your Son made on our behalf. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.